Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Friday, October 4th, and we're going through the X's and O's of the IPO process. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I've got Motley Fool Premium Analyst Joey Salitro with me in the studio. Joey, you are quickly becoming a regular here on the show. Hey, I wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah, it's great having you on. Um, today, we are going to be talking about uh, an email that we got from a listener. Um, Andrea wrote in and wrote to us and said, My broker recently offered pre-IPO shares of Peloton two days before it went public. It's the first time this has happened, and I wasn't aware it was even possible for a lowly individual like me to get in on an IPO. And she goes on to explain that she did some homework, decided Peloton was a no for her, but wound up having a lot of questions after this whole process. She writes in, This made me wonder a bit about how IPOs work. Maybe there will be a next time with my broker. As it's never been an option for me before, I've never looked into it, so I don't really understand the whole process. For example, why so many changes last minute? How is it that WeWork got one pulled last minute? Why do they never know what the IPO will be priced at until the last minute, et cetera, et cetera? It seems surprising to me that there aren't stricter rules around this, um, which which kind of led you and I to think like, wow, like we probably haven't ever done anything that breaks down how the IPO process works and why there is so so much vagary around the process up until shares actually price and hit the market. Yeah, there's there's a big gap between when companies say hey, we're thinking about going public in the next 18 months, and then you hear so-and-so is filed confidentially, and then you finally see the paperwork. Yeah, it's a very long process, and some investors kind of get lost along the way. But, I mean, it is very complex, so it, it does deserve the time that it takes. So this is going to be kind of a timeline of what that process looks like. Hat tip to Andrea for making this episode happen. Thank and, you, Andrea. And listeners, if you have stuff you want us to talk about, we love getting ideas for shows. So, you know, please write in. Um, so, so I think what ultimately kind of kicks thing off uh, with the IPO process is the company saying, okay, we're going to go public. And usually this is an internal discussion. Maybe they're getting some pressure from investors saying like, hey guys, you know, are we going to have this liquidity event? But typically management will make this decision and you'll start to see some staffing changes if it's a younger company that has a slightly less experienced management team. Yeah. So in today's day and age, if you're a tech company or any company in general, when you raise cash, you are going to go public eventually. It's just in the cards. It used to be, you know, the first three to four years, and it became more like seven years was the standard. Now you're seeing even ten to thirteen years. But as soon as you take that venture capital money, there the clock's ticking. So companies kind of know, okay, we're going to be going public eventually. They might do their, you know, after the seed round, they'll have round A, B, C, D, E of their funding. But then you'll start to see the staffing changes, like you mentioned. Usually they'll hire you know, a CFO that's been in the position to take a company public before. You'll see them hiring a lot of people in the finance department because they need to get those financials in order to be able to pass the test of a big investment bank. And so a lot of people will look at the job postings for some of these hot startups and say, oh, you know, they've got a lot of accounting positions. They've got a lot of finance positions open. You know, is it possible that they're going to be weighing an IPO down the road? I do that quite often. So <laughs> I'm, I'm one that buys a lot of IPOs, and I'm always in touch with all the different unicorns as they're coming public. So um, I'm even an accredited investor to where I'll be looking at a lot of these companies trading on secondary markets where insiders are looking to dispose of some shares to get liquidity themselves. And so I'll always look, hey, are they hiring a new chief financial officer? Have they recently hired one? You know, what was his background? Oh, he took this company public. Or, oh, she was over here. And then, of course, yeah, that led to an IPO. 
So yeah, that's one that I'll definitely look at, um, mainly in the finance. So if they have a lot of engineer openings, that's very common because yeah, they're, they're spending to grow right there. But yeah, always look for those finance and accounting positions because they're getting those numbers in order for a reason. And then basically you will see the paperwork start to happen, right? So uh, you hire the people that can make that paperwork happen, and then you start putting the paperwork together. Uh, the form that we tend to pay the most attention to is the registra registration statement or the S-1, but very often you'll hear us call that the prospectus. Yes. So that's the initial one. That's the big document that, I mean, it takes them quite a, quite a while to get that in because it's almost like the most intense background check you could ever run on a company because they not only want to know every dollar that's been accounted for in recent years, but they want to know all related party transactions. They want to know everything you've done and who you've done it with to kind of lay it all out on the line. And it used to be that this was a document that, when filed, was pretty quickly available to investors. Uh, that has changed a little bit. So you'll see a lot of news reports around this, and a lot of the financial media will follow this and say, oh, we're seeing these hirings, like it looks like it'll happen at some point in the next year or so. Often the company will even indicate, you know, by 2020, we want to be public. And then you'll see that news break that says, you know, uh, WeWork or Peloton or Lyft or whoever confidentially files an IPO, uh, you know, registration statement. And you're like, well, wait a minute, how come it's confidential? Uh, and that's because of a lot of the changes that came in with the Jobs Act in the recent legislation around emerging growth companies and, and now just all companies. So, um, you know, if you see that confidential filing, it's, there's nothing shady about that. It's just kind of the new process for IPOs. Yep. That's where you can almost, you know, make a note of it, put it on your watch list. You know, I always just take a sticky note and slap it on my computer amongst <laughs> the other hundred that's there and just know, hey, keep checking uh, different websites, see if that's finally available. But yeah, filing confidentially is kind of like the name of the game these days. So don't think that's too shady. Just know it'll become available in the near future. And the reason that that exists, that confidential filing, is supposed to be a pro-business move where if you have to make your books public, you know there are competitive disadvantages to doing that, especially if you're in a highly competitive industry. And so uh, you know if going through the IPO process puts you at a disadvantage relative to companies that are currently private, uh, it may disincent companies from doing that. And so they made this confidential carve out uh, so that more companies would be incentivized to go public. Yeah, because you're actually listing major customers of yours, you know, who represents what percent of revenue if it's, you know, if one customer represents over 5% of revenue, it's in there. So then your direct competitor could be like, hey, we'll beat them on price. Let's call so and so at this company that we know. Or you usually put in who your technology partners are. So if you're a smaller startup that's like, wait, how does Lyft do this exactly? Oh, wait, they're partnered with this company. It almost, yeah, it's only a couple of weeks and they can't do a lot of damage up to that point. But you are almost telling all your secrets without telling your secrets. So we, we probably need to rope in the bankers at some point during this discussion and explain the underwriting process a little bit. So you have the paperwork that is put together. Very often, you have uh, underwriters that are helping put that paperwork together. Yeah, they, I mean, that's pretty much what they do. These big uh, financial institutions, it's all they do. So they're going through your filings, making sure everything's there. And if there's corrections that need to be made or if there's something that was forgotten, it's pretty much them. If they were going to put their name on it, it's going to be perfect. And they're going to charge you a lot of money for it. <laughs> the, way, the way I liken it is, uh, you know, you have a real estate agent when you buy a house, right? Because you are not buying a home very often if you're the average person. Um, companies do not go public very often. Even if you're a seasoned executive that has taken companies public several times, maybe you've done it three times. So you're going to bring in an underwriter, a Goldman Sachs, uh, you know, a Morgan Stanley, 
someone who specializes in this to make sure that you're doing it correctly, the same way that you would bring in a real estate agent if you're buying a home. Yeah, it's pretty much like you're you're paying for the relationships that they have. You not only want them to go through all of your filing to make sure that it's perfect, but then they usually have relationships with the NYSE or the NASDAQ, and they have relationships with all these other investment banks that they need to partner with to actually sell your shares to, to have them sell to their clients. So yeah, it's almost like you know what you want to do, but you need that middleman to help you do it. And so as that's going on, very often you'll have the bankers uh, begin kind of reaching out to some of their industry contacts and saying, hey, we're going to be handling this deal. Um, just want to kind of gauge your interest. Uh, and so in the lead up to the company actually going public, that'll more formally take uh, take root as the roadshow, where the management team and underwriters wind up going out and meeting with all of these uh, either banks, big institutions, people who have a lot of money to throw around, and just kind of give them the pitch on what the company is. Yeah, not every company is is someone that everybody knows. So, you know, with Zoom and Slack, that's one that most people in the industry know. I mean, almost everybody's using Slack, it seems, these days. So, not everybody has the reputation to just come public. So, you know, a lot of those companies, when they don't need money, that's when they can do a direct listing. But most of the time, they're smaller companies. They might not be in a cash crunch and need it, but since they want to go public, and not everybody knew what Datadog was. They needed to have that investment banker kind of go around and say, hey, here's Here's everything that's on there. So yeah, they'll put together that roadshow presentation. You'll see the growth that the company's got. And then usually after that roadshow, then those people go back to their clients. And then that's where you kind of start gauging demand. Yeah. And it's an important part of the process because they're taking feedback from every one of those presentations and getting a better sense of what the market appetite might be for shares. Exactly. So that's where, okay, everybody loves tech companies. Everybody loves subscription revenue. So you know, Datadog coming, I'm sure the demand there was very high. But in other situations where if it's like a small biotech that's trying to cure cancer, where there's hundreds of those and, you know, those don't always work out, there might be far less demand for that. Those might be specific funds or specific people that want to kind of have their hat in the ring with those. So if you're listening uh, through this, you might be saying, well, wait a minute. Okay, all of these high net worth individuals, all of these big institutions, they're getting access or information that I'm not? When, when do I get my hands on the filing? When do I get to see the core business results? And so, if the company ultimately does wind up going through with the IPO, uh, just over two weeks before that happens, the S1 is no longer confidential. It winds up becoming public. And at that point, that's when you and I wind up getting our hands on this thing and digging into it for like an industry focus episode. Exactly. And that's where you know a lot of things take a turn for the worse. So, there might have been incredible demand for WeWork, for example, until that S1 came available and everyone starts looking through it and kind of combs through and sees, you know, I don't like this, I don't like this. And then they start realizing, you know, this is a real estate company trying to trade at a tech company valuation. And people kind of see through the smoke and you saw retail investors absolutely turned on them. So that forced the investment banks and everybody else to kind of take a second look like, okay, maybe we don't want to be participating in this. And that's when you see the valuation start coming down and down and down. So as soon as that S1's released, that's where the real demand can be seen. 
and then you'll you'll get the financial media all over it. So that's where things can really unravel for a company. Yeah, and and I wish that we could get our hands on this earlier. You know, I understand the process with the confidential filing and why it exists. There, there are some good reasons for it. I do wish that you know we had a little bit more than a couple weeks of lead time. With the way the news cycle works, very often we're able to get out the important stuff in that amount of time. But you know, these prospectuses are two hundred pages. You know, three hundred pages. It's a lot to work through uh, in a short amount of time and really do your due diligence, especially if you're looking at things like you know related party transactions or you know some of the moves that may make you scratch your head and wonder exactly how the incentives are aligned for a business. Yeah, I mean, so like you said, some of these are 250 pages long. So I've gotten to the point where I know the sections that I want to see. As I've said before, I always have like a generalization of what a company does, but then I'll always look at the numbers and then go back to it. So it's almost like backing into what the company actually does because I like to let the numbers speak for themselves. But then, yes, like you said, you want to go through those related party transactions like, okay, so this CEO's brother and sister own a cleaning company that cleans this entire building that they're headquartered in. And wow, they make $250,000 on this contract. But then you got to go look, okay, so what's the average revenue or the average cost to do that? And that might be legitimate. It might be three times the normal amount. So yeah, there's a lot of combing through and I would love to have my hands on it as soon as you know the investment banks do. But I mean, what can you do? Yeah, sometimes you just have to wait. Uh, the the thing that you will tend to see during the lead up, you know, the couple weeks ahead of the IPO, is a price range emerge. And this is kind of getting at one of Andrew's questions, where, you know, how is there a range on this thing? Um, and I think one of the important things to remember with the IPO process is you're taking something that is fairly illiquid, right? You're taking a valuation that maybe is updated once a year or twice a year if they're going through a ton of capital raising events and then you are trying to set it to something that the market will respond to and liquidity will be like that it'll be available all the time and the price will basically reflect the current attitude in the market it's a very difficult thing to do yes yeah, so with the whole price range so you have to understand that as these companies raise money over time they're going to have different share counts and it's going to be a different share price on those where you know, there might be a $2 billion startup that is last raise was $4 per share, or you've got an Airbnb that's pushing $30 billion and their share price is over 100 So everybody's, just like we know, you know, share price doesn't really mean anything, but what that share price range is usually based on is the last time they raised capital and if they, want, if they believe that they should be trading at a premium from that. So if the last capital raise was $1.2 billion and it was $6 a share, hey, we might want to go public at $2.4 billion and $12 per share. But that's where you'll get the range. Okay, so 10 to 12. But then as they proceed on that roadshow, they see the demand like, wow, this is going to be well oversubscribed. We're going to bump up that range, maybe 14 to 16. And if the demand's still there, they might even raise it again. But then that's where the whole price discovery comes into play. Yeah, and you said oversubscribed. Uh, that means just demand is higher than supply. You'll also hear undersubscribed. If you're about to go public, that's not a word you want to hear. Basically, it means uh, that demand for shares is lower than the supply that you are looking to sell. And those are the types of things that will push shares to price above a range, below a range, in the middle of the range. You know, if it's exactly what they expected, well, you're probably going to wind up dead in the middle of the range. You know, um, but it can be a little weird to look at it and say, well, they're saying 17 to 21, but they priced at 25. Like, how does that happen? Yeah, and that's the thing. So, if demands where you're setting your range or below, like you said. So if there's 10 million shares available and only 5 million, so you're undersubscribed, 
there's a very good chance that that will be postponed or just completely withdrawn. Or if you've got demand for 20 million shares and you're only bringing 10, then that's where you'll see that price range go up. So it's almost like you want to water down the demand. To It's almost like they don't want to leave too much money on the table, but they still want that first day pop yeah, because th- it looks good in the market. And this gets into the incentives of uh, the IPO process, which we've talked about a little bit. But you have a company that is trying to raise money, right? And they're giving away equity, trying to raise money. It's a capital raising event for them. It's also a liquidity event for its shareholders. You have an investment bank that is facilitating that process, collecting fees on that process. Very often, they have a commitment to own a certain number of the shares, part of the offering. And then they are facilitating the entire offering by connecting the company with their high net worth individuals or these institutional clients that have huge budgets and have an appetite for these. And so, you know, the underwriting banks don't want to sell a dog to their high net worth individuals. They want to be giving them a good investment opportunity. So, their pricing might be a little conservative so that there's some upside. The company's saying, well, we're raising capital and giving away equity. We want to make sure we're maxing out this valuation. Those can sometimes be at odds with each other. Yeah, this is where it comes into play where, you know, the big investment bank is thinking for themselves and their clients as well as, you know, this company they're bringing public. So, they want to get them liquidity but they might not give them every dollar that they're worth because there still has to be you know, room for that demand to be there. So if they start contacting their high net worth clients saying, hey, we're going to bring this public, we think you know, there's going to be a significant one day pop or you know, pop on the first day, it's almost like that's their incentive for helping bring that company public. So yeah, that's where you know, I always like to say you know, if a company comes public and I like it and it goes down, you know, they just didn't leave any money on the table. But in a market psychology sense, they really want that first day pop because then you kind of turn those traders into long-term holders where, you know, like a Beyond Meat comes public and just rages out of the gate. They did leave quite a bit of money on the table. They could have priced it higher, but, you know, maybe the demand didn't say it was there. So they priced at a range that they thought was reasonable for them to raise the money. And I mean, the people that got that allocation, wow. They must be happy. Yeah, and to be clear, some management teams want to see that first day pop too. You know, they love the publicity of saying, "Oh, you know, the shares are up twenty five percent, thirty percent, whatever it might be." Um, you know, conversely, if you price it to perfection and it's you know a zero percent move, it's like it's pretty ho hum. Um, or you know, some management teams will wind up with a broken IPO, quote unquote. It's the financial media loves saying broken IPO, and that means that shares are below where they priced. Uh, yeah, that meant that they priced their equity. Uh, and maxed out the value, but there's a lot of negative press that comes with that. So you're have you have all these people that are weighing all these different things. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those where it's very good to get coverage from the big media outlets where, oh, this first day pop of 58%. Because then, I mean, say you price your IPO at 20, it doubles on day one to 40. Then when it pulls back to 39 and change or, or drops to even say 31, people might think, oh, wow, that's a steal. Like this is down yeah, it's still, X percent, it, and it's still you know above whatever they priced at originally, right? Yep, so exactly, so there's still that positive momentum there. Um, so it's all to say that you know the the night before the IPO, you'll generally see the offer price be solidified. 
Um, and if you are on the receiving end of some of this information from your bank, you know maybe they are just trying to prove their value to you and offer you some access to some of these IPOs. You'll see a range often, and then maybe a more solidified uh, price if you decide to commit to buying some shares. But very often, if you are making that commitment, you're doing it at a range rather than a specific price. Yeah. So then you'll you'll pretty much get a solidified range, and they still might price a dollar above that range. But this is where. Andrea was talking about where her broker gave her access to it. So, how that works is these underwriters will have relationships with brokerages or with these other banks. So, I know for a while TD Ameritrade and Charles Schwab had deals with Goldman Sachs to where anything they were underwriting, they would get a specific amount of shares. And I think I read that Fidelity has a deal with Credit Suisse. So, depending on who your broker is kind of partnered with uh, on the investment banking side, you might get that notification, hey, if you want to participate in Peloton's IPO, here's the projected range. You could say how many shares that you would like to purchase and at what range. So you have to have that cash sitting in your account to do it. They won't let you do that on margin. So that's when it's almost like account value comes into play, even though they'll tell you differently. I got one of my brokers on the phone. And I was like, look, I need you to be honest with me. How does this work? So if you say, hey, I want a thousand shares, but your whole broker is being, you know, a they're given a million shares to give amongst their clients. You say you want a thousand, but your account might only be a hundred fifty thousand. They're going to give it to their clients with several million dollars. So they might they say that they go in hundred share spurts, like they'll just keep going around. So everybody kind of gets a bite of the pie. But I don't believe that for a minute. I feel like they're giving big allocations to their most important clients, and it's kind of whittling down. But you indicating that interest is how they gauge demand. And so then they could price it and say, hey, yeah, we've got these amount of people. And then once you're locked in there, like there's no going back. Once it kind of comes that next morning, if you indicated interest at that thing, it's it might come to you. Yeah. Speaking of incentives, right? Like for these brokerages, it's a chance to give their uh, you know, the people that have very large account balances with them that white glove treatment and say, Hey, we're gonna give you access to this thing that only, you know, institutionals have access to or only super high net worth individuals have access to via investment banks, we're gonna get you in there. And so for them it's a little bit of like a marketing kind of client services thing. Uh, yeah, and that's more important than ever. I mean the race to zero has <laughs> officially come true. You've got what TD Ameritrade, Schwab, E-Trade, everybody's $0 commission. So they've got to find more reasons to retain clients. So if they can say, hey, we have access to this amount of IPOs this year and you know we expect more next year, it's all about how to retain those clients. So if you know having IPO access is one of those kickers, then more power to them, right? So, so if uh, if you do wind up participating in this, you will you know have the underwriter hook up your brokerage, and then uh, you know brokerage will deliver you those shares, uh, and so you'll have where the shares price for that first offering. And you have to remember that's kind of the primary sale, so that's the capital raising sale, and then you know morning of the IPO. You have a second phase of price discovery, Joey. <laughs> yeah, and see, this is where the rich get even richer. So, so yeah, you have that initial pricing. You might have a small allocation at those shares, but yeah, then they're still you know contacting different clients. They're all talking months. That's when you get the CNBC coverage of the booth, and it just shows everybody yelling at each other, <laughs> kind of like old school yeah. buy, 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 sell, sell, sell type deal. And yeah, they're finding that right sweet spot for those shares to open. And that's when the really rich clients are sitting there like, okay, I got mine at 25 and early indications 42. Like That's when they're kind of licking their lips waiting for that to open. But yeah, that's where the second price discovery is almost like, okay, so we found where the company's 
demand, you know, where the market demanded or, or where everything laid out to where we think this is a good price to come public at. But now let's find out what we want it to open at. And so that's why when the market opens and it's day one of trading for an IPO, the shares will not immediately be available. They are going through this price discovery process to say, okay, let's gauge interest on buy and sell side, see what we can do here to get something that feels reasonable, maybe give some upside for these first couple trades and establish a market. And yes, the incentives at play are, are questionable sometimes. But also, it kind of comes back to this, like, we are trying to put this in a position where it can participate in a highly liquid market where prices can move uh, by the second, when the valuation for this company has been fairly static, you know, in six-month or 12-month chunks for its lifetime so far. Yeah, and you always have to remember that there are those circuit breakers in the market to where, you know, if a company soars out of nowhere or plummets out of nowhere, it's going to hit a circuit breaker, trading's going to be halted. So if you had a company come public and they open for trade at 9:30 and all of a sudden there's 10 million shares trading hands and the stock jumps 40%. I mean, you just have trading halt after trading halt after trading halt. So yeah, that that early price discovery is more like if it opens up 42%, then yeah, it might trickle down to 38 or up to 52. It's not going to be as significant as a move as that opening trade. But it's almost to kind of keep everything in line and make sure they don't break anything. So at this point, we are on the secondary market, and all trades are not capital raising events for the company itself. They exist between investors. And so, you know, if you buy uh, shares in the first offering and sell them to me, you're the one that's pocketing that money. None of that money is going to the company, and we are effectively on, you know, the Nasdaq or the New York Stock Exchange and just transacting that way. Yeah. And so, if you end up participating in the IPO, or if you're an insider that's still holding shares, you're going to have that lockup period where you can't um, be selling. Or I think how TD Ameritrade had it for me, if I was to participate in an IPO, I had to hold them for at least 30 days. So they try to prevent you from doing it, but there's nothing really to stop you once they're in your brokerage account. You could immediately sell it, and then they might just make you you know, not participate in a couple. And I mean, I tried to participate in a bunch through TD Ameritrade, and I never got allocated anything. So that's when I kind of think of our, our viewer that sent in the question, Andrea, when you know had an opportunity, even if you really indicated interest, there's a very small chance you would have gotten it. Um, unless you have a massive account, then hey, good for you. But yeah, that's where they do have that lockup here to try to prevent you know too much selling. But that's where the secondary raises come into play. So if you're beyond meat and you know you go public at one price, then out of nowhere you're over two hundred forty dollars a share, <laughs> and you want to raise capital again, then that's really where you can raise some significant capital. So I think we've touched on most of the questions from Andrew's email. There, there's one more outstanding though that I want us to hit. You kind of kind of got there a second ago. Should investors participate in that first round if they're offered, and what are the risks? And I go back to what you were saying before about allocation, and I think it really comes down to how big of an account you have and how willing you are to put a decent amount of your assets behind something that is just going public. Yes. Yeah, so I'm almost always fully vested. I mean, there's. It's more likely that I'll have some cash on my margin than there will be cash sitting on the sideline. I just always think having money sitting there is just a complete waste. So for me, if I was going to participate in one of those IPOs, I would have to sell something that I already own to then have sitting in the account to indicate interest to my broker to then try to get some allocation. But for others, you know, if you have a lot of cash sitting on the sideline and you really like the company, you've seen the financials, you really believe in it, then that's where you might say, okay, I'm willing to put 2% of my capital into this or or 1% of my capital. But then you have to factor in, if they're actually giving out these 100 share allocations at a time, 
you might indicate interest for $10,000 worth of shares and you're given 1000 So you have to be ready to purchase the bulk of your position after the company opens for trade. And then it's almost like, do I really want to have this tiny position sitting there? Like, Or do I want to just watch the open, see what happens, and maybe buy at the opening trade? Or kind of like I have with Datadog and other ones, watch it, see what happens, and you know, buy it later on. Yeah, my concern with this, I think, is people being pressured into a position where they're putting a little bit more behind something than they maybe want to because they want to make sure that they get some of that allotment. Uh, you know, if you don't have a very large portfolio, say you have a you know fifty thousand dollar portfolio or maybe twenty thousand dollar portfolio, um, anything lower than that certainly too, uh, you're going to have to put up you know or commit to probably several thousand dollars in order to have that order filled. And that's going to be a big chunk of what drives your returns. And you know, if you're thinking about diversification and you know making sure that you're not too weighted to any one position, uh, that could put you in a tough spot. Especially if you know, like we've seen with a lot of these IPOs, they wind up trading well below offering price uh, a couple months out. Yeah, and that's where a lot of brokers have gotten better to where you know they'll have account minimums to be able to participate in their IPOs, but not all do. But yeah, like you said, you don't want to, you know, if you have a $50,000 account and you decide, oh, I love this company, you don't want to put your whole account into that one company. I mean, especially lately, I mean, it used to be no IPO could do wrong. It was almost like everything that came public, it's popping 40, 50% on day one, it just keeps running. Now it's almost like retail investors are getting smarter, combing through these releases. I mean, you saw from WeWork that got pulled after, I mean, you saw changes in management, the valuation changed five different times before it got pulled. And then even this week, there were supposed to be, I think, five biotech companies going public this week, and two got postponed or withdrawn, and one price below the range, one at the midpoint. So you see the demand for IPOs isn't there like it was you know, early this year or late last year. But it's almost like, yeah, these retail investors are, are starting to get smarter and, and combing through these releases and seeing what these companies really do. So the way that I like to think about IPOs as an investor is they're kind of similar to being at a wedding as uh, someone watching the wedding, like a friend or a family member, especially if you're single, right? You're, you're at this wedding and uh, it is this big event. It's this huge proclamation of love. You know, it's like emotions are soaring. There's this euphoria. Well, it seems really seductive in that moment. You have to remember, you have years of marriage after that. And it's the same thing with the IPO process, right? You have all this fanfare, all this attention, all this hype around this company. They still need to be a good company day two, day 10, you know, day 10,000. And you can get in later as an investor. You don't need to feel pressure to, uh, you know, propose immediately to your significant other just because you're at a wedding, you know. And similarly, you don't need to buy shares just because it's going public. You can buy shares day two, you know, when when it's hit the secondary markets. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these. So it still comes to play that they are coming public in the stock market. So one bad headline out of the White House or, or anything like that, and the whole market starts pulling back. So yeah, you see a lot of these great IPOs or these great companies coming public, and it might rage out of the gate, but it pulls back with the rest of the market. So like you said, yeah, don't let the wedding day or the honeymoon be like the period, okay, I didn't get it on day one, I got to get it on day two, or I got to get it on day three. You know, Sometimes it's best to wait for that first earnings release, because 
that's where a lot of pressure is going to be on that company because if you miss the mark on the first earnings report, I mean, you could be taking 20, 30% haircut. Yeah, it can be rough, especially if it doesn't line up with guidance. And I think that's why, you know, we generally tell people, you know, buy your positions in chunks. You know, it's okay to get, uh, you know, kind of a tracking position in a stock that you're interested in, especially if it's small uh, early on. But remind yourself that, you know, you're buying maybe three or four times to build out the full position rather than anchoring your cost basis to just one point in time. Exactly. That's where IPOs are the ultimate you know, scale into your positions play. Um, there's other situations where you might want your full allocation right there. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely one that if I love a company enough to buy it right at the open, I mean, I don't always put a market order. I always have a limit order um, right around where the indication is going to be. But yeah, I'll never purchase the full position because I know you know, if it's going to pop 40% out of the gate, it could end the day up 20%. It's still a great day, but wow, I just took a major hit. So, always buying in those splurts, you know, buying some here, you know, maybe wait till after the first earnings report and don't let the whole FOMO thing get you. Every, I think that's what really got the IPO market as juiced up as it is, that fear missing out. So, people need to just almost like, you know, on IPO day, throw on that Taylor Swift song, Calm Down. Like, just <laughs> relax, take a deep breath. And and I had to bring that one up because it's been stuck in my head all morning ever since listening to it on the ride in. You know, if we had the music rights for it, we should totally play that at the credits. Sadly, <laughs> sadly, I think Taylor Swift's uh, PR team might hear it and know uh, that we don't. So <laughs> same with for this podcast, that whole "It's Friday," the most annoying song ever. Yes, if that was the intro song. Hey, you know what's funny? I haven't I haven't heard or thought about that song in about five years, and I'm going to have to listen to it after this show. So, thank you for the great advice, and I hate you for putting that song in my head, Joey. Austin, can you do that for us? <laughs> Joey, thanks so much for hopping on today's show. Always a pleasure being here. All right, listeners, that's going to do it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email over at industryfocus at fool.com. I mean, we'll probably use it for an episode. We love getting emails. I can't emphasize that enough. Ask a lot about IPOs and tech so I can come back. <laughs> yeah, Joey plug right there. Uh, and if you don't want to email us, you can tweet us at MF Industry Focus as well. If you want more stuff, subscribe on iTunes or you can catch videos from the podcast and tons of other content over on our YouTube channel as well. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks again to Austin Morgan for all his work behind the glass today. Go Nats. For Joey Salitro, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening, and Fool on. 7 a.m. waking up in the morning, gotta be fresh, gotta go downstairs, gotta have my bowl, gotta have cereal, seeing everything, the time is going, ticking on and on, everybody's rushing, gotta get down to the bus. Catch my bus, I see my friends Kicking in the front seat Sitting in the back seat Gotta make my mind up Which seat can I take? It's Friday, Friday Gotta get down on Friday Everybody's looking forward to the
was Thursday, Thursday, today, yeah, it's Friday, Friday, we, we, we so excited, we so excited, we gonna have a ball today, tomorrow is Saturday, and Sunday comes afterwards, I don't want this week to end, Rebecca Black, so chillin' in the front seat, in the back seat, I'm driving, cruising, fast lanes, switching lanes with a car by my side. Passing by is a school bus in front of me. Makes TikTok, TikTok, wanna stream? Check my time, it's Friday, it's a weekend. We gonna have fun. Come on, come on, y'all.